Well, uh, as I said, it is good to worship with you, and I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures if you haven't already, uh, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in verses 27 through 37, and we're going to consider the call for purity. Now, providentially, over a year ago when I scheduled out this sermon, I had no idea we'd be holding a purity event the same week. Trusting in the sovereignty of God can protect us from fretting and from running from topic to topic in the scriptures. We can trust that as we faithfully walk through the scripture and expound on them clearly, we will, in God's timing, address the moral issues of our day. And purity certainly is a moral issue of our day. And it has been since the fall in the garden with Adam and Eve. Every generation faces different manifestations of of turning to a standard of purity that's outside the clear teachings and commands of God. Now, while every generation and culture may have different manifestations of it, the core underlying issue is the same, regardless of time and culture. We lack purity in our eyes in our marriages, and in our words. And we'll cover all three in our text as we continue looking at Jesus' greatest sermon. So our main idea this morning is simply this. Faithful followers of Christ lead pure lives. That may seem like a no-brainer and an obvious conclusion in the gathering of, of a local church. But we're hypocrites well, at least I am. We fail to act and follow what we say we believe. And we don't lead pure lives. And, and neither does the world around us. Now, the low-hanging fruit, of course, there's always low-hanging fruit. It'd be easy to, pl- to point out the flawed cultural understandings of the LGBTQ plus movement or sex outside the confines of marriage. Uh, or pointing to the constant lies and half-truths of your favorite politician or news personality. But are we just as concerned about our own lack of purity as we are with those around us? Or are we like the Pharisee of Luke 18, who easily sees the flagrant sin of others, but self-righteously excludes and excuses our own? Brothers and sisters, Jesus in our passage, he's gone up on a mountain to declare a kingdom law and a way of living that is to be true of every faithful follower of Christ. Jesus goes up on a mountain and he tells his followers to inwardly wrestle with the commands of this new king, this better David, who has clear policies that you and I are to follow. So coming off the heels of our calling for unity that we saw last week, calling for us to put away anger and murder in our hearts, now we're being called to be pure. And I'll frame this purity in three headings for us. First, we have pure eyes. Would you read with me, please, Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Our Savior Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Stern, stark, sharp language. And just as he did with anger, Jesus points to the heart condition behind the command, you shall not commit adultery. First found in Exodus 20, verse 14. You see, the moral standard of this kingdom living under Jesus has been yet again raised. Last week, murder was something we have all, all of us inwardly committed, but likely haven't physically known. However, in a local church our size, in contrast, there are probably some here who have committed adultery or suffered from the consequences of it from someone else's poor choices. And if that's you here this morning, I want you to know there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. Now, you might wonder why the law was first given through Moses and now reestablished by Jesus. Why does it focus on adultery? Now, whether it be literal, the physical act of verse 27, or just the lustful intent of the heart in verse 28 that looks longingly and sexually at someone made in the image of God, the focus is, in our passage, on adultery. There's an implied assumption that this is all happening in the context of marriage. Now, we know that not every man and every woman will be married. That was true in Jesus' day, and it's true in ours. But Jesus' initial context would have been Jewish. Jewish men and women were married and pursuing family life, most of them, and, you know, career by, by the age of 20. They grew up young. And Jesus focuses on adultery rather than something like premarital sex. Because in that day and culture, the temptation of lust largely in that day and culture was manifested in the confines of marriage. So there are arguments for and against marrying young, but it's clear that marriage itself does not take away sexual temptation. It's in the marriage context that Jesus is talking. Marriage is not supreme or the magic pill that solves this heart issue. The union of marriage is focused on, as it relates to purity in Jesus' teaching, not because marriage is the height of Christian life. But rather, it's because sexual intimacy between a married man and woman, it's deeply spiritual. Adam and Eve in the garden were naked and unashamed. They were naked in body and soul. Physical, physical intimacy, it was a picture of exclusive, lifelong, bodily and spiritual loyalty. So there were well-meaning men and women in Jesus' day, and certainly in ours, who will read in this passage or in Exodus, do not commit adultery, and we think we're good. I'm innocent. I haven't broken that law. Well, that's how the self-righteous minds of the Pharisees thought and operated back in verse 20. Verse 28 in our passage flips the script. When we look with lustful intent at another, we've broken the command and the policies of King Jesus. 
The issue isn't whether or not we notice a beautiful or attractive man or woman, but it's when that observation gets twisted into some kind of imagination or fantasy of that person. And this attraction, it can look a number of ways. Uh, An emotional attachment at work with someone who gives you attention. Flirting with a waiter or waitress under the guise of just being silly. Scrolling through inappropriate images and videos on your phone. Reading novels and watching movies that bring your mind and heart to a place that just pushes against the bounds of sexual purity. Really any form of having sexual eyes and affections for someone other than your spouse. If that is the law of do not commit adultery, if that is the law, if it's not just physical, but spiritual and mental, if that is the law, then we've all sinned. Everyone in this room has failed in some measure. There's a heart issue, and I I think even a brain issue in how we think that needs to be addressed. Notice where Jesus goes with it immediately, however, in verses 29 and 30. Essentially, Jesus says, this is a serious issue. Take action. Do what you have to to get away from it. Pluck out eyes, cut off limbs, throw the novels and the DVDs out, hand over the privacy settings on your cell phone, get rid of your computer, whatever measure you need to do to protect your heart and the future of your soul, do it. Faithful followers of Christ don't sit in our sin and wish it away. We take action. But we'd all admit we've tried this and our actions come up short. Even drastic measures haven't worked. You know what's really interesting about taking action? Is in order for there to be action, there has to be some measure of confession and admitting that this is a real problem and a real hurdle and a real temptation and a real situation that we find ourselves in. And I find it really interesting in the Christian subculture and having been a Christian for 18, 19 years now, I still don't fully understand Christian subculture or any of the songs that you guys talk about. One of the things I've noticed is In a church, if someone says, I struggle with alcohol, we'll celebrate their courage and boldness and we'll help them get into a program. If someone's trying to kick smoking or they come and they admit that they're angry with their spouse or with their children, we'll readily admit it and seek help and the church will celebrate it. But then when it comes to pornography, same-sex attraction, sexual issues, temptations and struggles out of the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, the church is hushed. Why don't we take action? Because none of us are willing to admit that we lack purity with our eyes. So yes, we need to take action, but we have to admit it first. And even when we do take action, even drastic measures, it hasn't worked, has it? The heart issue remains. We still sin. So let the weight of that sit on you for a moment. We have to admit that we have impure eyes. We have to take action, Jesus says, which necessitates confession. 
And sometimes even our drastic measures hasn't produced victory, healing. So we put it under the rug. Sit on that for a moment. Look with me how Jesus continues the call of purity by calling us not just the pure eyes, but the pure marriages. Read with me in verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I've heard it said that if lust begins with a wandering eye, that perhaps divorce begins with a wandering mind. A lack of contentment and a lack of purity with eyes can and often does lead to a lack of contentment in a committed marriage, which can lead to divorce. Now, this passage hardly expounds on all the teachings of marriage and divorce that's found in the Scriptures. So you'll find yourself disappointed this morning if you're looking for these two verses to answer all your questions. And we will address divorce later on in the book of Matthew, but let's focus our attention on what specifically Jesus is saying in this passage. Plain and simple. Jesus is prohibiting cavalier and flippant divorce. So a little context is required. In the Old Testament, we read laws that were put in place to curb the sinful tendencies of men and women who were being unfaithful to one another in marriage. There's stark language for those who were unfaithful, for men and women. However, with men specifically, Moses permitted laws regarding divorce because some of those men were rejecting a plan for a lifelong partnership and they divorced their wives on a whim, often with no real cause. So to hinder men from doing this, we read in the Old Testament, specific laws were put in place to limit divorce to be only accepted in light of significant issues and offenses, provided that they would give a certificate to the other person so they would be free to marry someone else. This law protected divorced women by giving them an option to remarry, and it slowed men down from sinfully tossing away their marriage vows. So fast forward now to Jesus' day. Men were taking this Old Testament law and concept of divorce and certificate, and they were abusing it. They were drumming up significant indecencies and accusations against their wives. And Jewish history is full of rabbis debating and determining what was sufficient cause for divorce. So an, an example, the Mishnah is a collection of oral Jewish tradition. It gives light on this as rabbis, quote, judged it sufficient, a sufficient cause for divorce. If a woman spoiled her husband's food, or even if he found another fairer than she. That's not funny. That's disgusting. So that's obviously gross and contrary to the teachings of Scripture, and it circumvents the law of Moses that he laid out regarding divorce. Jesus isn't speaking in contrast to the law of Moses. He's speaking in contrast to the fake righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees that were holding the marriage union Lightly. And this really does boil down to a heart issue. When husbands and wives hold their union to one another lightly, we'll look for any excuse to get out. 
The hard issue behind this command is the reality of men and women not cherishing, loving, accepting, and grinding out true marriage partnership as they navigate every season of life together. And I've had so many conversations through the years, and this is what I've come to find out. Regardless of the season of marriage you're in, every season is a fight. Every season is a fight and a rediscovery of what it means to pursue your spouse, to cherish them again. So listen, there are exceptions, clearly, and adultery is one of them in verse 32. And as is from other scriptures, abandonment, and as I understand it, abuse as well. Have these exceptions been fabricated at times to justify someone wanting to move on? Sure, yeah. Are there men and women who initiate divorces or who have been handed papers by their spouse? Yeah. Are these matters often complicated, gray, and hard to navigate? Yes. Jesus is not unaware of our broken world and our broken relationships that sometimes don't work out for a multitude of reasons. Jesus is challenging faithful followers of Christ to strive for pure marriages. Pure marriages that are not flippant and cavalier in their commitment, as these hypocritical ones were. Their culture and ours isn't so different, is it? No-fault divorce in those laws in our own time, which have become commonly increased since the 1980s, they're not laws that provide an, an exception or protection for exceptions, but they're laws that give us the freedom to hold marriage loosely and toss it to the side when we don't feel like being committed. The truth is, I wonder how many, many of us would be willing to admit this. The truth is, many of us had fleeting moments or even years of battle, dryness, and difficulty in our marriage. And we've considered what tossing away our vows might mean. You know, it's, I, I find it a little, I have a little social experiment that I do, and you don't know I've been doing this. But some of you sometimes will come up to me and ask me how you can pray for me. And I often share very specific and legitimate things. If you're wondering what that sound is, it's melting snow coming off the roof. You're fine. Nothing's happening. So my social experiment is people ask me how they could pray for me, and I give them some very specific things, but I often ask people to pray for my marriage. And the look on your faces. (gasps) Is everything okay? Kind of. I mean, my wife's been putting up with me for 18 years now. She needs prayer. See, Jesus comes in and he says that a loose holding of marriage is not the kingdom way. So God help us. And this is why every single marriage here, including mine, every marriage needs prayer, support, and even the occasional counsel and wake-up call. And if you're single here, by the way, I need you. Relational community is not some cute core value that we put up on a wall. 
relational gospel community understands that men and women and yes, even children have the right and the privilege and the equipping of God to speak into my marriage and yours. Certainly if a single man like the Apostle Paul can speak about marriage, then some of you singles can encourage me in mine. So every marriage needs counsel and help and support. But we fail in this aspect of purity too, don't we? We don't just fail in our, with our pure eyes. We fail in our marriages. Our marriages are not pure. Hang on to that for a moment. Lastly, I want us to look at not just pure eyes and pure marriages, but pure promises. Would you read with me, please, verses 33 through 37? Jesus, he says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, it's likely that every single person in this room would agree that talk is very cheap. In my best Jerry Seinfeld impression, a car rental company can take reservations all day, but it's holding the reservation that's most important. And if you don't get that reference, I just wasted a really good joke on you. (laughs) The point is, even if you're not a fan of Seinfeld, I can spout off words and promises, but do the actions of my life meet what's coming out of my lips? I've read that oaths, promises, and contracts, they all have the same goal, to induce people to tell the truth and be true to their word. Some have wrongly understood that this passage prohibits taking an oath at all. But we have to understand this passage in light of the totality of the scriptures. God himself makes oaths and promises, as do many men and women in the Bible. Even today, we see oaths in military or civic positions or oaths in a courtroom. And then there's this question of public and private speech. Here's how one commentator chimed in. We distinguish between public and private speech. In private, among friends and brothers, we should simply tell the truth so that the need for oaths disappears. Yet, since God himself swears oaths for the sake of his doubting listeners, we can take oaths for the sake of our doubting listeners. So in Jesus' day, oaths, as you might read even through the New Testament, oaths and lofty promises were very common. Someone would invoke God's name. I swear by God that I will do this and this and this. And if I don't, God can judge me. That's how it kind of worked. So what was created was some kind of confusing rabbinic system that determined whether or not your oath was legitimate. So I read this week that Jews would swear, I swear to do this. I swear by Jerusalem. Well, if you swore by Jerusalem, 
uh, Jerusalem. It, it didn't count. But if you swore towards Jerusalem, that counted. If you made an oath by the temple, it didn't count. But if you swore by the temple's gold, it counted double. It was very confusing. And the whole thing really turned into meaning nothing at all, these taking oaths. So Jesus comes in and says, stop it. Don't swear at all, verse 34. Throw away the system and simply tell the truth. Let there be purity in your promises and in your commitments to one another. Because think what an oath and a promise really says about every single person in this room and humanity. Why is there a need for oaths and promises? Because we live in a broken world and we have evil in each of our hearts and we have failed to do as we say. Promises are made because there has been a lack of purity in our words. So the example is, the parent says to the child, I'll get you ice cream. And the kid responds, do you promise? Why is that a category? Why does that child need reassurance? Because every parent in this room has said they will do something and failed. Every politician has said they will do something and they do the opposite. Every Christian has said they will pray for someone and then they don't or they forget. We all lack purity in our promises. And Jesus says that that is not to be true with the faithful follower of Christ. And telling the truth is a challenge for us. A couple cultural observations. I think we have issues with exaggeration and courage. We fabricate and bend the truth to make a point and win an argument. And we struggle with a fear of man to speak plainly with people about the truth. Faithful followers of Christ need a renewal in the sanctity of words. Being slow to speak. Telling truths, especially about Christ and his gospel, in an encouraging, kind, and yet bold, bold way. Being slow to speak and bold is part of that simplicity, as Jesus says in verse 7. 37. There ought to be a simplicity in our speech that is marked by purity. Yes means yes, no means no. But we fail in this too, don't we? We may find at times we have courage to speak hard truths, but we exaggerate and bend the truth to do so. Or we speak true words and we temper and deceptively soften those words and are unwilling to be courageous. We make promises we don't keep. When we say yes, we really mean no deep down in our hearts. That's the passive-aggressive Minnesota way. Our underlying issue is a failure to believe Jesus' teaching and apply them to our lives. We think we can say or post whatever we like, ignoring that Jesus says we will be accountable for every, every word. So, this has all been very sober. Where do we go from here? I'm not pure in my promises. I hold the sanctity and cherishing of my spouse loosely in marriage. It's not pure. And I'm not actively taking steps to turn away from wandering thoughts as I look at the opposite sex around me. I don't have pure eyes. Now what? 
If you understand the Sermon on the Mount as simply a set of moral teachings and guidelines, you are not a faithful follower of Christ. There are many well-meaning Jews, atheists, Muslims, and deists who would affirm our passage and they would say, I should follow this. But how do we read the scriptures as a Christian? Fundamentally, the kingdom policies and the teachings of Jesus are far too high and too lofty. I can't obtain them. And we're going to encounter that head on, especially next week, as we are commanded to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So you can beat yourself up over the head and obtain perfection, or you can read the scriptures like a Christian. See, understanding the teachings of Jesus in the Christian framework is to be a man, a woman, or a child that hears these, these words, this call for purity. We hear the words from the mountain that Jesus is speaking, and we say, I can't, and it drives us to the gospel, to the good news of Christ. The call for purity with our eyes and with our marriages and our promises should bring us back to the Beatitudes. So thumb back in your copy of the scripture and go back to the beginning of Matthew 5. I'm going to do this often in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, I argued, as we went over it a few weeks ago, that the Beatitudes are the most critical aspect of the entire sermon. If you don't understand the Beatitudes, you won't understand the rest. So read with me our passage through the lens of Matthew 5, starting in verse 2. Blessed are the poor in spirit who see that they have not followed the call for purity. Blessed are those who mourn over their impure eyes, marriages, and words. Blessed are the meek who have been stripped of pride and see they are their greatest problem. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a righteous purity that is not inside themselves, but in Christ. See, my friends, the overflow of encountering God and being changed by him in the gospel is that these beatitudes are shaped in you. And it affects your anger that we talked about last week. It affects your purity as we look at this week. And it affects the lack of love that we'll consider next week. The promise of God is that when you become a faithful follower of Christ, you will be changed from the inside out. So when we, call to, when we come to the high standard and the high calling of Jesus on our life, especially as it relates to purity, we can be poor in spirit. We can cling to the righteous one who will produce and create in us what he asks of us. Did you catch that? What he asks of you. He will shape in you as you cling to Christ. The Christian scriptures do not teach that we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and be moral. That's not Christian. On the contrary, we are called to believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to forgive our sins and bring new life to our frail, weak, and impure hearts. Programs, Diligent accountability partners, protections on your cell phone, marital counseling, and a swear jar in the kitchen. 
All of these things can be used as good and necessary tools, kind of mini laws to guard you from impure eyes, marriages, and promises. But tools can only get you partway there. Your desires, your heart, your brain, your spiritual language, your spiritual eyes, your thoughts and prayers, all of you, it must be recalibrated and changed by the gospel of Christ. God in you, changing you, renewing you. That is how we read the scriptures as Christians. And I just spoke with someone uh, after the, the first service. And they came up to me and they shared that they had heard this passage preached uh, recently. And the passage was preached in such a way where it came across as this. Here are the high moral callings to Jesus. Let me know how you do this week. Shape up. Be more godly. And my friends, that is the cart before the horse. As faithful followers of Christ, we come and we say, I'm impure. And for many of us, that's a difficult thing to admit, even to ourselves. But the gospel doesn't rest in our own performance. Your good standing with God is not based on how good you were this week. Your good standing with God is settled and determined by the righteousness of Christ. Jesus fulfilled purity on your behalf. He was pure in his eyes. He didn't hold the marriage union loosely. His yes was always yes, and his no was always no. And his righteousness on, his, on your behalf is what God has ordained for you to cling to. Faithful followers of Christ lead pure lives. Pure lives that have been shaped by Jesus. And actually, this is, and it informs our communion time really well this morning. I'll ask those who are serving communion to come forward. Communion was instituted by Christ for Sundays like this one. Sundays where we would come to a passage and a teaching that seems lofty and high and difficult. We're confronted with our own sin and frailty. Perhaps in this teaching and in this passage, you've been brought in a fresh way your own inconsistency and failing, your own deception. Maybe there's someone you need to talk to today and confess sin. Communion is the exact reminder that we need today. That we cling to the broken body and the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. So let me pray as the elements are served to us. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we come confessing the righteous work of Christ on our behalf. We are so thankful that he was pure where we have not been. We are thankful that there is great grace in the gospel of Jesus. God, we are thankful that you have the power by your spirit to change us, to shape our eyes and our marriages and our, in our words. So as we reflect on the finished work of Christ, would we be a people who celebrate and rejoice in what you've done? 
would we heartily, eagerly bring our failure to you and celebrate that the chains can be broken, that freedom can be won. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.